Well, today was another brutal day in Ukraine. There was another barrage of Russian missiles raining down on the country, attacking its civilian infrastructure, uh, essentially knocking out power and water systems, heating right across the country, um, really trying to turn winter into a weapon in this war. The entire Kyiv region, home to 5 million people, had only sporadic power and running water as night fell today, uh, Wednesday. Snow's already fallen there as well. Uh, spokesman for Ukraine's Foreign Affairs Ministry spoke to the Canadian press today. He was in a small concrete bunker underground. Oleg Nikolenko says 10 million Ukrainians didn't have power earlier today. So the winter uh, time will be uh, very difficult uh, to Ukrainians because uh, of the uh, Russia's uh, missile terror. However, we are um, consolidating the support from Ukraine's partners to help us pass the winter period. Talks are underway about help from Canada, but uh, our country doesn't really have the industrial capacity to provide Ukraine with some of that really needed heavy equipment, such as transformers. We'll see what we can do. Um, The attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure continues as Russia continues to suffer losses on the battlefield. You remember that they pulled out of the key city of Kherson in the South earlier this month. Here is how U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield explained Russia's tactics today. It seems that Putin is determined to reduce Ukraine's energy facilities to rubble. Putin's motive could not be more clear and more cold-blooded. He is clearly, clearly weaponizing winter to inflict immense suffering on the Ukrainian people. He has decided that if he can't seize Ukraine by force, he will try to freeze the country into submission. Now, last night we spoke with Nobel Peace Prize laureate Oleksandra Matvichuk, who's a human rights lawyer in Kyiv. In fact, while we were speaking to her, the lights were out and the heat was off. She's been living through that like everyone else for for weeks now. Um, And again, she reiterated that this is a Russian tactic to try to punish and demoralize the Ukrainian population. They tried to suppress the resistance and to occupy the country by the tool which I call the immense pain of civilian population. That's why they provided a lot of suffering to Ukrainian civilians. And now we reach the point when Russians are publicly discussed on their TV how better to destroy critical civil infrastructure and to make millions of Ukrainians are freezing during the winter, each hit on civil object is for crimes. Oleksandra Matvichuk on the show last night. Again, you can find all our interviews, including with Oleksandra, last night on the A Little More Conversation podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I highly recommend that interview. She, again, is a Nobel Prize laureate for 2022. She shared in that prize, her organization did. Uh, and she's been fighting this fight for a very long time in Ukraine on the front lines, including now in that uh, dark room where we spoke um, via Zoom. The lights were out. You couldn't see her. So is there anything more? Like We understand now that this is Russia's game. There's nothing. There is no low that is too low, right? So you essentially try to freeze out a population in the middle of winter. Anyone who knows anything about a Canadian winter can understand what a Ukrainian winter is like. They're very similar. Um, So this is Russia's tactic now. Can't win on the battlefield. Let's let's make the entire civilian population of this country, who, by the way, have never done anything wrong other than want freedom. Um, Let's make them all suffer. So are we doing enough to hold Vladimir Putin to account? The sanctions, of course, we knew were going to take a long time. To, to have an impact. We have seen some 
Uh, the Russian economy is contracting, we know. Um, they are having trouble rearming. Uh, the sanctions are biting, but perhaps not the way we would expect it to. These take a long time, plus they're still selling a ton of energy to the West because they haven't managed to wean themselves off it just yet. Uh, somewhat. So is there a way that countries such as Canada can be doing more to tighten the vice on Vladimir Putin a little bit? Well, my next guess, without a word of a lie, has to be one of Vladimir Putin's least favorite people and has been for a very long time. Bill Browder is the head of something called the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, named after a lawyer of his who was killed by Putin's regime. He's one of the world's leading campaigners against corruption, specifically Russian corruption, and there's a whole lot of that. And the CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, the author of the bestsellers Red Notice and the current one, Freezing Order, Order joins me now from London. Thanks so much for your time. Great to be here. Um, nine months since the invasion, we've talked so much about sanctions and the impact that they're having or not having within the country. What's your sense of, of what's happening inside Russia? We saw the latest uh, statistics showing a 3-4% contraction in the economy. Those are the official numbers, at least. I, I think Russia is flailing. Russia is suffering um, in every different way. I mean, just think about it. So ever since they imposed this conscription Every male between the ages of 18 and 60 has thought, you know, they could die on the front in Putin's uh, ill-advised war. And so no, nobody knows the exact number, but I would guess that some, the number is probably close to a million highly productive males have left the country that were doing jobs inside of Russia that are no, no longer. On top of that, you've got 300,000 people drafted to become cannon fodder. And, and that's just the, the sort of what we know about. There are also people who have, who have slowly left the country. On top of that, you've got a thousand Western companies that have all given up their business in Russia. You've got sanctions biting on the oligarchs. You've got sanctions biting on all the companies in terms of not providing technology so they can't make, you know, they can't put airbags in cars, that planes are not airworthy because they don't have U.S. avionics. It's a it's a mess, and and to say that it's on three three to four percent contraction in GDP, I think is a complete nonsense. Yeah, just the official numbers, and it seems like the the sort of the the backup plans, the trades, the trade with India, the trade specifically with China, hasn't happened either in a way that might one might expect. You know, it's really interesting that they everybody was saying, oh, China is going to fill in the the blanks, fill in the gaps. You know, when when Mastercard and Visa pulled out, they thought AliPay will come in, but you know, Ali AliPay doesn't want to be subject to U.S. sanctions any more than MasterCard and Visa. They didn't show up. And everybody said that Chinese mobile phone companies will, will fill in where the uh, where Apple is no longer providing, but that didn't happen either. And so the only thing that Chinese are doing that's helpful to the Russians is buying their oil at a huge discount, by the way, at like a 30 or 40% discount. And so China hasn't been this big brother, friend, ally, you know, uh, sort of locking arms with Russia. China has been an opportunist taking advantage, but it's, it hasn't helped Russia, I don't think. And yet the economy too, I mean, you, you're, you're so familiar with that world of the oligarch. Uh, it feels like the economy is becoming even more corrupt and centralized than it was before, which I, I, is hard to imagine. It, you know, there used to be this thing in the economy where companies in Russia would want to be kind of westernized so they could get access to western capital that they could have western investors western customers now that doesn't happen anymore and so they've gone sort of full fully full broke criminal and and, and you can see all little little hints of this you know all these people that 
supposedly committed suicide, all these people from Gazprom and so on, they didn't commit suicide. They, they, were, they were murdered. And why were they murdered? They were, they were murdered because people were fighting over money. And uh, that's just, that, that's just the, like the tip of an iceberg. And, and deep down, it's just a free-for-all as everybody is trying to get used to this much smaller economic pie and all fighting over the scraps. Yeah, and it's a and it could be a deadly fight. I mean, this is like fighting over turf, right? And just because it's Gazprom and it's you know a, a former World Cup sponsor doesn't mean that it's not uh, the fight over it isn't going to be as nasty as what we would see over a turf war somewhere else. Well, the fight's even nastier because the money involved is much bigger. This is huge money, and 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 the oil and gas business is the only money left in Russia, and and so they're they're all at each other's throats, literally. Yeah, I was going to ask you about. I was meant to ask you about what you thought of those many uh, sudden deaths of CEOs in Russia. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, the sanctions themselves, though, I mean, you've obviously for a long time championed uh, going after the Russians, Russia's richest where it hurts the most. How successful has that been gl- globally so far in the grand scheme of things? Well, sanctions have two pers- possible purposes. The first is deterrence, so to, to stop somebody from doing something. And the second, if you haven't stopped them, is punishment. And the sanctions never worked as a deterrent for Putin because we never used them before this. Uh, You know, after Russia invaded Georgia, there were no sanctions. After Russia took Crimea, no sanctions. After Russia carpet bombed Syria, no sanctions. And and, and about a thousand other things. Everybody was just sort of tiptoeing around Putin. And so he, he, he was of the opinion that we weren't going to do anything nasty or terrible to him if he invaded Ukraine. And he thought that there's a great, for him, a personal upside of invading Ukraine and no downside. And so sanctions didn't work as a deterrent. And so now the question is, do they work as a punishment? And and the answer is yes, to a certain extent. But we have to be much more comprehensive if we really want to um, dr- sort of grind down his war machine and, and make sure that he doesn't have enough money to continue to execute this war. And we, we've done some good stuff. The West has frozen $350 billion of Russian central bank reserves, which, which by the way, was the uh, finance minister of Canada, Christian Freeland's idea. Now, that's really powerful. The West has sanctioned 40 of the top 118 oligarchs, and that's, um, that's definitely tied up a lot of money. Uh, the West has, has stopped allowing technology to be sent into Russia so they don't have microchips and semiconductors to make bombs and other, other things like that. And as I mentioned before, the we- all thousand Western companies have pulled out of out of Russia. So the, the sanctions are hard hitting, probably more hard hitting than anything that's ever been done against anybody ever, anywhere. But um, the one thing is missing is that we we still when I say we, the Western world still buys oil from Russia and gas from Russia to the tune of a billion dollars a day, and Putin still spends a billion dollars a day killing Ukrainians. And so that, that's the big sort of elephant in the room on the whole economics front. Yeah, and I mean, we see some progress there, but it's it's slow going. I mean, obviously there are political considerations in Europe um, and where you are in in the UK as well over just how much um, how expensive energy can get and how much people are going to have to sit in the dark this winter. Yeah, well, I mean, so I mean, the, the good thing is that that Putin stopped supplying gas um, to Europe, and the Europeans have figured out a way to um, buy gas from elsewhere. They they've set, set up LNG terminals. They bought gas from Norway, from Algeria, from other places. People are rerouting gas within European countries, and and you know it's hard to say. It's still early early days, but they're predicting that this will be a warmer winter than usual in Europe. And if that turns out to be the case, then uh, 
you know, maybe that whole gas card didn't work. Putin overplayed his hand. Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and author of the bestsellers Red Notice and Freezing Order is with us this half hour. We're talking about Vladimir Putin, Russia, sanctions, the war in Ukraine. Um, You were just in Canada. You had some really interesting stuff to say about the effectiveness of Canada's ability to make sanctions bite and how we seem to be, as a country, compared to some others, we seem to be struggling to make these work. Uh, what, What message were you hoping to deliver while you were here? Well, so uh, Canada is is a, it, can, the Can, Canadians are sort of of two minds about how important they are in the world. On one hand, people say, "Well, Canada is a relatively small country." On the other hand, Canada is is considered to be a, a, a really important um, sort of bellwether or, or moral leader, and so Canada can have a big impact. And so I was really happy and proud that Canada passed the Magnitsky Act in 2017, which allows the Canadian government to freeze assets and ban visas of human rights violators. But since it's been passed and, and everyone declared victory and, and Canada declared its moral leadership, very few people have been sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act. And so uh, one of the messages that I was trying to deliver in Canada is, is use the Magnitsky Act, you know, stop torturers and murderers from coming uh, from you know, coming into Canada and stop them from from spending their money in Canada. And, and there's lots of them to stop. There is the Iranians there. There are the Chinese. There are the Russians. There are the uh, Venezuelans. And I would really like to see Canada acting in line with its very good international reputation to be the moral leader that Canada has the reputation for. And so that was one of the messages I was delivering. And then the second message, and this is really important in relation to the war in Ukraine, is that um, all over the world, people are starting to get Ukraine fatigue in terms of spending money to uh, support Ukrainians. And I fear that if the West doesn't send money to the Ukrainians, that will severely hamper their ability to fight off the Russians. But there's a solution to this problem, which is that, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, that that $350 billion of of Russian central bank money has been frozen in the West, including in Canada. And that money of Russian, that, that belongs to the Russian state, could be used, repurposed, for the defense and rebuilding of Ukraine. And I think it's such an important issue because... If Ukraine gets access to that money, they will win this war. This is the single most important thing that we can do right now, other than supplying weapons to Ukraine to help them win the war. And, and I'm very worried on the flip side that if we don't do that, and at the same time, the West starts to curtail the other financial flows that have been coming to the Ukrainians, they may very well lose the war. And so this is the the big crux issue, which I've been discussing in Canada and various other places around the world. And I think it's one of the most important determinants of how this conflict ends up resolving itself. What is the state of the $350 Because we spoke about it, I think, back in, I mean, this happened fairly early on, right? It happened uh, back in the spring. What has happened to that money? Does it sit in, in limbo now? It's just frozen. And, um, you know, the... the, the uh, the, the the way these things n- normally happen is it just sits frozen for a long, long time. The idea that that I have and many people have, the Ukrainians have, and lots of politicians around the world have, is Russia has committed a grave crime. They've inv- they've invaded our, a neighboring country. It's cost a trillion dollars of damage to the Ukrainians, and we have custody of the money. Let's let's um, take that money and confiscate it. Let's seize it, not just freeze it. And you know the the um, uh, bureaucrats argue, well, it's never been done before. This would violate various principles and so on and so forth. But, you know, 
Russia killing hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians also violates a lot of principles. And, and I don't think this is a legal issue. I think it's a political issue. Yeah. And, and as you put out, so much about this fight has become financial as well. At the end of the day, we talk a lot about missiles and and, and fronts and Kherson and, you know, battle battlefield advances. But it really, it boils down to money in, in many so many ways. Everything always does in the end. Money is the, is the root of all evil and the source of uh, the solution to all problems. When you look at what could lie ahead for Russia, um, there is talk about a certain weakness now around Vladimir Putin that the fact the war isn't going well has been has been put him in jeopardy. Do, do you buy that? Yeah. I mean, there's no question. I mean, the, so the, the, the war, I think, at, at the beginning, he did for a very specific reason because he wanted to be a wartime president thinking that the war would be easy. And, and he wanted everyone to rally around the flag as they have when he's launched previous invasions, which has worked very well for his popularity. But now he, he launched the war, his popularity spiked, and then all of a sudden half his battlefield soldiers were killed or, or dismembered or, or uh, disabled. And, and so all of a sudden he was either going to have to lose the territory he had invaded or he was going to have to put more people into battle. And in doing so, he then had to go and, and draft a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of men between the ages of 18 and 60. And all of a sudden, every man between the ages of 18 and 60 is sitting there thinking, I'm, gonna, I'm about to, to become cannon fodder. I don't want that. I don't want to die. Why should I die for this war, which I don't agree with? And so as all of a sudden, this popularity that, that you know, people could be, they could be supporting Putin from their armchair but now all of a sudden they face death. That's a different. That's a different story altogether. I heard yeah. a very interesting thing from a friend of mine who is a journalist, an American journalist who was in Moscow, and he was there when I was there. And he said to me, "You know, all those restaurants we used to go to. I, I've been to a few of them, and there's no men. It's only okay. women in the restaurants because the men are afraid that they're going to be press ganged into the, you know, to the army and sent to the front." You you spent a lot of time watching Vladimir Putin. You found certainly found a way under his skin over the years. What do you think he? What do you think his mood is like these days? I think he's sitting there in his bunker, scared to death. Because if if he loses this war, he loses power, and if he loses power, he dies. That's as simple as that. And so he's just this is, you know, he's doing everything for his own survival now. Bill Browder, as always, thank you. Thank you.